on Sunday mornings and on Tuesday evenings during Lent at Kenilworth Union Church this year. Katie and Joe and I are preaching and teaching a series called Gifts from the Dark Wood. It's actually the title of a book written by a friend of mine. He is referring to gifts that don't look like gifts when we first experience them. They become gifts only in retrospect. These are things that happen to us when our life is dark or when our lives are entangled in a forest thicket, but then years maybe later we can see them uh, as gifts from God, and today the gift of emptiness. And I've chosen for our Lenten consideration this morning a passage from the book of Exodus. The story I'm going to read from you is actually the second time Moses goes to the summit of Mount Sinai to receive God's greatest gift, the Ten Commandments. The first time he went up there, you'll remember, he came down the mountain, he was so mad he threw them on the ground and um, smashed them to smithereens. So this is the second time he's going up there to meet God. Sometimes I guess it's a little comforting to hear that even God's projects end in futility. But here's the story. The Lord said to Moses, cut out two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I'll write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, the ones that you broke. No one shall come up with you, and do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountain, and don't let flocks or herds graze before the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name Yahweh. The Lord passed before Moses and said, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, showing steadfast love to, to the thousandth generation. And Moses bowed his head and worshiped. And Moses said, If now I have found favor in your sight, Lord, I pray, let the Lord go with us. God said, I hereby make a covenant before you and all your people. I will perform marvels such have never been seen before on the earth. And God was there with Moses for 40 days and 40 nights. And Moses neither ate bread nor drank water. And from the Christian scriptures, a single verse, the saying of Jesus of Nazareth comes from near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, like Moses before him, goes to the top of a mountain and brings down the good word from the Lord. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, what have you given up for Lent? What valuable commodity have you sacrificed for the sake of your spiritual vitality? Some Christians go without food during Lent. This can range from Lent light to Lent apocalyptic. Lent light is going without food for 24 hours, one day a week for the six weeks of Lent. Lent apocalyptic is nothing by mouth but juice and water for 40 days. Twenty years ago, Liberty University in Virginia was in such financial trouble that some people doubted it would survive. So the development office came up with an innovative development fundraising campaign. They had founder, Liberty founder Jerry Falwell go on a fast for two 40-day periods, two full 
40-day Lenten-like fasts separated by 25 days as a break between. Jerry lost 82 pounds and gained $50 million. So don't scoff at this ancient spiritual discipline. Yet isn't it odd that this eccentric practice has taken root in every major world religion? This is especially true for Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, right? When Moses meets Yahweh at the summit of Sinai to receive God's greatest gift to God's people, the Ten Commandments, the experience is so sacred and so lofty that Moses goes without food and drink for 40 days and 40 nights. And of course, when Jesus goes into the wilderness to meet his demons, he is imitating Moses when he goes without food and drink for 40 days and 40 nights. All of this is why Lent is exactly 40 days long. Muslims fast for the month of Ramadan. It's the month when Allah dictated the Quran to Muhammad. From sunrise to sunset, they refrain from food, water, sex, tobacco, lying, and quarreling. When it gets dark, you can go back to doing these things. Some scholars think that the Islamic practice of fasting during Ramadan was inspired by the Christian practice of Lent in the Syrian churches during Muhammad's lifetime. Now, I'm pretty ecumenical, so in years past, I've sort of combined Lent and Ramadan by going without food from sunup to sundown. My wife calls it Ramalent. Now, fortunately, in February and March, the days are pretty short, about 10 hours. These poor Muslims, this year Ramadan is May 26 to June 25, which means that they have to fast on the longest day of the year, the summer solstice. Exactly 15 hours, 39 minutes, and 13 seconds of daylight. Now you don't necessarily have to fast from food during Lent. I have a friend who says that she is fasting from her iPhone during Lent, or at least that's what she told me. I'm not sure I believe her. What would be worse, no food or no iPhone for 40 days? You could fast from television this Lent. Some of us will fast from news this Lent. You could fast from Neiman Marcus this Lent if you think you might be addicted. A clergy friend of mine says, this Lent, I am fasting from Horace Blanchard, the most negative person in my congregation. Now, there's a thought. You could fast from negative energy and annoying people for 40 days. It would be like a vacation. It's an odd spiritual discipline, especially for people who never had enough calories in the first place. Even when they weren't fasting, they were hungry. Calories were dear in the 10th century B.C., in the 1st century A.D. It's an odd spiritual discipline, but I think you can figure out why people of faith have been doing this for 3,000 years. Right? It's because when we're hungry, when we're fasting, we are most in touch with our own vulnerability. You never feel more like a creature than when you're hungry. You are in touch with your own earthiness. You know you are dependent upon God for every good thing. Also, I think it probably sharpens our empathy, don't you think? We can live into a little bit, just a little bit, we can live into the experience of those four million folk in South Sudan who are starving. It's just catastrophic. Did you see this wrenching segment on 60 Minutes Sunday night? Have you ever participated in one of those planned famines from World Vision 
World Vision wants youth groups to lock themselves into churches for 30 hours. So they're doing a lock-in, but it's not the typical pizza and popcorn. During these lock-ins, the kids go without food for 30 hours. It's called a planned famine. It's like a charity marathon. The kids get sponsors and raise money for World Vision food programs. One young woman, a high school senior, participated in a planned famine, and she was so inspired she's thinking of making international aid her career someday. She says, you know, I used to say when I'd skip a meal, I used to say, I'm starving, but I will never say that again because I was never starving. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled Fasting gets us in touch with emptiness. My friend Eric Elness says that emptiness is one of the gifts of the dark wood. But I'm not so sure he's right about that. I'm not sure emptiness is a gift. Emptiness can be lethal. Nature abhors a vacuum, the scientists tell us. In empty space, nature abhors a vacuum. It's one of the most powerful engines in the universe because the matter nearby will rush aggressively to fill that emptiness. Nature abhors a vacuum in empty space. Nature abhors the vacuum in your gut if you haven't eaten for 24 hours. Nature abhors the vacuum in your heart if you have lost your spouse or your parent or your child. Jane Kenyon has a very difficult poem. It's called The Sandy Hole, The Infant's Coffin, No Larger Than a Flight Bag. The young father steps backward from the sandy hole, eyes wide and dry, his hand over his mouth. No one dares to come near him, not even to touch his sleeve. Nature abhors vacuums. Nature abhors the vacuum in your world of meaning, right? Don't you think addiction is a human response to the shallowness or hollowness that we sometimes feel inside ourselves? We try to feel the empty place with medications, choose your poison, alcohol, weed, Oxycontin, or maybe a more socially acceptable medicine like BMWs and Givenchy and Rolexes and Carnival Cruises and Relay and Chateau. Human nature abhors the vacuum of the infinite darkness that bookends our existence, a vast nothingness before our birth and another in terminal void after our death with just the thinnest sliver of existence between the eternal silence, says Blaise Pascal, the eternal silence of these infinite spaces terrifies me. Horror vacui in Latin, the fear of nothingness. So maybe my friend Eric has it all wrong. Maybe emptiness is not a gift, but just an abhorrence. On the other hand, you saw that coming, didn't you? On the other hand, maybe nature adores a vacuum. That's what New York Times science writer Natalie Angier says. Nature adores a vacuum. And she says this because that's almost all there is in the universe, right? Then the universe is full of emptiness. This is true on the microscopic and the macroscopic levels. This is true atomically and cosmically. This rock is so heavy in my hand. It's dense. It's solid. You wouldn't want anybody to throw this rock at you. It would hurt. But this solidity, this density is a myth. The atoms in this rock are 99.999% empty space. Outer space is the same way. It's almost empty. It's almost a vacuum. 
Beyond the solar system, interstellar space has just a few hydrogen atoms per square mile of interstellar space. So nature adores a vacuum. Well, what's the point, right? That's all physics, preacher. How does this touch my everyday life? How about this? You see, the thing about life is that in order to gladden the hearts of those who walk the way with us, we use what we've got and what we haven't. We use what's ours and what we lack. So you might have a brilliant mind, so you can teach people with your keen intelligence. You might be social magic and gladden people's way with your friendship. You might be a comic master and gladden people's days with your jokes. But what if all you have is an empty heart? We can gladden each other's ways with our laughter, our tears, with our sadness, with our joy, with our plenitude, and with our emptiness. Did you ever wonder how Stephen Colbert got so funny? Stephen Colbert, Northwestern University, class of 1986, by the way. Stephen is the youngest of 11 children in a devout Roman Catholic family. Stephen is raising his own family in the same way, devout Roman Catholic. Youngest of 11 children. When Stephen, his father was an immunologist. He was raised in South Carolina. When Stephen was about 10 years old, his father flew his two older brothers to Connecticut to enroll them in a boarding school, but the plane crashed in Charlotte, and his father and his two older brothers were killed. On the way home from the funeral, on the way home from the funeral, one of his sisters made another sister laugh so hard she fell on the floor of the limousine. And that was Stephen Colbert's call to Comedy Central and The Late Show. He wanted to be able to make people laugh at life's worst moments. I think he's doing a pretty good job, don't you? Has anybody read this new book by George Sanders called Lincoln at the Bardo? It's number two on the New York Times bestseller list last Sunday. Lincoln at the Bardo is about Abraham Lincoln's experience in February of 1862 when his beloved 11-year-old son, Willie, died of typhoid fever. Willie is buried in a cemetery in Georgetown, and the novel tells the story of the president's visit to his son's grave. So, February of 1862, right? It couldn't have gone any worse for President Lincoln. Thousands of soldiers in the North and the South were dying every week. The Union victories of 1863 and 64 were months ahead of him. He is being vilified by friends and enemies alike. We forget he was the most vilified president until Barack Obama. And this sadness just about crushed him, but not quite. The novelist says that a burning away of Lincoln's hopes and dreams led to a kind of naked seeing of things as they really were. He said to himself, we seem to be born to love, but we'll lose everything we love. How do we go on positively in the face of that shadow? And the novelist says, I came to understand Lincoln as someone so beaten down by sadness and loss that he developed a crazy sort of wisdom. He woke up to himself. He stepped out of himself and realized that his suffering was not unique. Everybody was going through that. And so these terrible things of February of 1862 in George Sanders, the novelist's mind led straight to the greatest speech in American history. 
with malice towards none and charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan. Straight line between that emptiness and this majesty and kindness. Be kind, said the wise old philosopher. Be kind because everybody you meet is fighting a great struggle. And so we will gladden the hearts of those who walk the way with us by what we have and by what we lack, by our plenitude and by our emptiness. So are you brilliant? You have a bright mind? Teach me some unknown curious truths. Are you strong? Carry the burdens I can't. Are you hilarious? Tell me a joke and make me laugh. Are you social magic? Make me your newest friend. Is your heart empty just now? Well, come and pull up a chair. We'll share our brokenness. And when we're finished, we'll come away just a little more healed, just a little more whole just a little more hail. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.